Okay, let's pray again as we continue on. Father, I pray even as we've read these things this morning that we've, in a sense, entered back into the experience of the Israelites who endured such uh, suffering, who were given such privilege and, and experienced such rich blessing. Theirs were the fathers. Theirs were the promises. They were the recipients of your covenants. They were the ones that you chose out from the world to be the instrument of blessing and renewal in gathering for all the earth. And that calling in which they failed was met with incredible brutality and suffering, a rejection and a retribution that at the time must have seemed utterly hopeless. Our God has rejected us. Our God has destroyed us and left everything desolate. How can he be faithful? Why would he be faithful? And yet, Father, through all of this, while your hand was destroying, your mouth was continuing to affirm through your prophets that your oath to Abraham, your mercies to David, would be upheld. The day would come when you would arise again, when you would throw off the yoke of bondage and exile, of oppression, when you would bring forgiveness and covenant renewal, when you would restore your people to yourself. And all of that would come in some mysterious way in connection with this promised son of David. Somehow he would fight off the enemy that had captured and, and was so oppressing and had so beaten down to the point of hopelessness, the people of the covenant. Somehow he would see to it that the people were forgiven that the covenant was renewed. And somehow through his ministration, the God of Israel would return and take his place again in his sanctuary. And David's house and throne and kingdom would attain to a glory they had never known. This is what the people hoped in. This is what they longed for. This was the expectation that Jesus met when he was born into the world. And I pray, Father, that you have given each one of us a sense of that that glorious story that we can find our own place within it and that we would be encouraged that we too worship and serve a God who is faithful and that because of the faithfulness of God in, in the faithful Messiah, we have become a part of this rebuilt, this reconstituted Israel. We have been grafted in to the Abrahamic family. And because our inheritance is our share in the inheritance of the true seed of Abraham, that can never be taken from us. We can never be cast off. We can never find ourselves in captivity or exile. We have already been glorified as image children because we are sharers in the Messiah. So as we consider Judah's story this morning, Father, I pray that you would Help us to have the sunrise from on high rise ever more strongly in our own hearts and minds. 
Show us and give us a more clear and a more glorious vision of our Lord, the one by whose name we are called, the one who we serve and who we desire to honor in sincerity and truth, even as we gather together today in his name and for his sake. So meet us for the sake of your son, the dearly beloved of the Father. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we look at the southern kingdom in comparison with the northern kingdom, uh, I mentioned last time that Israel's entire legacy, Israel in the north, its entire legacy was one of unfaithfulness. The kingdom was founded uh, on the basis of an apostasy. Remember, God had given to Jeroboam the ten northern kingdom, uh, northern tribes to form his own kingdom. But from the outset, he established his own system of worship. He built his own altars. He raised up his own priesthood. And he did all of that out of fear that if he allowed his Israelite subjects to return to Jerusalem three times a year, they would get drawn back into David's kingdom. So from the very beginning, the Israelite kingdom was one marked by apostasy. At the very least, worshiping the God of Israel in a place and in a manner with a priesthood that he had forbidden. And very quickly, they began to graft into their worship other gods, other practices, incorporating the practices of the nations around them. And the whole history of the kings of Israel was that they followed in that pattern of the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat with which he caused Israel to sin. On the other hand, the kings of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the progress of the kingdom of Judah was marked by ups and downs. There were uh, some kings who were faithful in Judah. We'll see they had their own failings, but there were faithful kings and in, under their reign, there was revival, there was restoration, there was a kind of, of restoring of, of faithful worship, faithful devotion to the God of Israel. I mentioned a few of those here, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those are kind of the notable ones. But again, just as with Jeroboam as the first king in Israel, Rehoboam as the first king in the divided kingdom. Rehoboam, remember, was Solomon's son, and God divided the kingdom during the reign of Rehoboam. So he was the first king of Judah in the divided kingdom. He too set a precedent for the nation. He set the stage for its progress. Rehoboam was an unfaithful king. And he established idolatrous practices already from the outset in Judah. He followed that same path of apostasy and idolatry. And so already from the outset, there's this indication that this isn't going to go well. So despite the fact that there are ups and downs, the general trend is downward, even throughout Judah's history. For about the four centuries, not quite four centuries that it endured, but throughout that period, that was the trend. And in the end, God condemned Judah as more vile and more guilty than Israel, particularly because of its unique privilege. It was the house of David. And as we're going to see, it was even allowed to be preserved for a season. God preserved it for a season when he destroyed the northern kingdom. And yet even watching that happen and seeing what happened to their brothers and sisters in the north, Judah didn't learn from that. In fact, they became worse in that last period from 721 up to, to their own destruction, final destruction in 586. 
So if you just look over, we'll read a couple of these verses from Ezekiel 16. And I've already given you some of the background on Ezekiel, when he lived, what he did, what, what his uh, ministration was about as God's priestly prophet in Babylon. But here he gives kind of an assessment of that judgment. And if you read in chapter 23, then I mentioned this last time, God refers to these two kingdoms under the names Oholah and Oholabah, two sisters, both of whom were harlots. But the younger sister, as she's called Oholabah, proved to be a worse offender than her sister Oholah. And they correspond to those two kingdoms. But in Ezekiel 16, beginning at verse 44, the Lord says, Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote a proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughters of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria who lives north of you with her daughters and her younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. So Samaria represents Israel in the north and God is saying of you, Jerusalem, you have two sisters. Sodom is one of them, Israel is the other. And that itself is a stinging indictment, right? Sodom is your sister, Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were not, as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Your offspring. Behold, there was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant and they had abundant food and were careless in their ease, and they did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty, committed abominations before me, and I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you've made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. So God says that Jerusalem, Judea, David's kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah is more guilty, more corrupt, more polluted, more adulterous, not only than Israel in the north, but even than Sodom itself. And again, an echo of when Jesus comes and he says, if the things that have been done in you, when he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the things had been done in Sodom that have been done in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, but you... Will you ascend up? No, you will be brought down. So Judah is condemned as worse than Israel, and a lot of it was because she had a longer season to repent, and she saw the outcome for her sister Israel in the north, and yet she didn't turn from her ways. In fact, she, she only got more and more accelerated in her apostasy. So the general pattern of the southern kingdom then was this overall progressive decline interrupted by occasional periods of spiritual repentance and revival. And I just want to kind of briefly touch on this line of kings in, in building that case. As I say, Rehoboam was the first king in Judah under the divided kingdom, and he laid the foundation for that apostasy. 
of the nation because he began that, that process of apostasy. And God responded by bringing the Pharaoh of Egypt and the Egyptian army against Jerusalem. You can read these. I'm not going to go through all these uh, passages, but you can go back and refer to them yourself. So Jeroboam in the north had renounced Yahweh's temple and set up his own system and place of worship. Rehoboam effectively renounced the temple. He despised it and he left it to be desecrated by the Egyptians. When they came, they took all the precious implements, everything of value in the temple. So from the very beginning, there are signs that this is not going to go well. There's very little on uh, Abijam, the son of Rehoboam, but he continued in that same path. His son, Rehoboam's grandson, Asa, he tried to turn things around. He dismantled the idolatrous structures and practices that Rehoboam had put in place. He eliminated, eliminated the images, cult prostitution, and his mother, the queen mother, he stripped her of her royal status because of her idolatry. She had built an Asherah to, as her own little uh, shrine of worship, and so he stripped her of her status. So Asa was trying to deal with already this, this uncleanness, this corruption, this spiritual unfaithfulness that was growing in Judah. At the same time, the text says he left the high places in Judah untouched. He left them alone. And you see this as you read about these kings that even though they did certain things, they tended often to not go after the high places. And I think it was because, number one, these were like localized shrines that were built on hilltops and altars throughout the land. The idolatry of the people was expressed in little local uh, manifestations. And so the kings tended to deal with what was happening in Jerusalem in connection with the temple or you know, focal things. And they didn't send out their men to go through the countryside and search out every little altar and every little shrine wherever it may happen to be. Now, some tried to do that. But I think when it talks about them leaving the high places intact, that's what it's getting at. This would be like going house to house and, and clearing out uh, the idolatry that's taking place at that sort of local personal level. So Jehoshaphat then is, a, is one of the kings that we know well, and he also is marked by his devotion to the God of Israel, but his reign was also blemished. And we talked about the significance of Jehoshaphat last time. He gave his son Jehoram in marriage to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Remember, Ahab's wife was Jezebel, and Jezebel was the Sidonian princess who tried to eradicate the knowledge of Yahweh in Israel and establish the Phoenician gods and the Phoenician system of worship, basically turn Israel into an extension of Phoenicia the kingdom and culture that she had grown up in. Well, their daughter, Athaliah, Ahab and Jehoshaphat formed an alliance and it was an alliance sealed by marriage. So Jehoshaphat's son and Ahab's daughter married. So Athaliah, who is Jezebel's daughter, came into the house of Judah and she became the wife of the king that succeeded Jehoshaphat. So what happened then is this alliance, even after Ahab was gone, even after Jezebel was gone, the corruption that existed in that household was brought into Judah and perpetuated in the kingdom of Judah through Athaliah. 
So Jehoshaphat effectively introduced Jezebel's pagan and wicked influence into Judah. She was her mother's daughter, controlled by the same passions, devoted to the same godless self-serving agenda, and she was able to wield the same perverse influence over her husband as Jezebel did over Ahab. So when Ahaziah becomes king, Athaliah has a son, Ahaziah. He becomes king in Judah after his father Jehoram dies. He ends up being assassinated. He follows very much in the practices of Ahab. He was very much influenced by his mother. When he's assassinated, then Athaliah, who isn't even of the house of David, right? She's actually related to Ahab and Jezebel. She sees her opportunity to seize the throne. And so she claims the throne of, his, of Judah for herself, and she has executed every member of the royal family, including her own grandsons. And providentially, the one son, Joash, they managed to hide him. He's young. He's a baby. He's hidden in the temple, which is interesting. That's the one place you wouldn't go looking to try to find him. The temple was totally neglected throughout this period. So as she's searching for all of the members of the royal household, anyone who could possibly be a threat to her claiming the throne, uh, Joash is hidden in the temple. And so you have now Athaliah attempting to destroy the kingdom of Judah by destroying the Davidic kingship. So whatever Jehoshaphat's intention in forming this alliance with Ahab, he may have even thought somehow he was uh, honoring David by trying to bring the whole house of Israel back together again. Remember, David had brought together the 12 tribes. But in the end, what he did was only pollute David's house and nearly destroy his dynasty and kingdom. So God saw to it that this one son, Joash, was preserved and in the seventh year, when Athaliah is reigning as queen, Joash is brought out of hiding and he's crowned king. When she hears this going on, she sees this coronation ceremony taking place. She goes running in there screaming, this is treason, this is treason. But Jehoiada, the high priest, orders that she and everyone who's loyal to her be executed away from the temple. In other words, their uncleanness, this, this execution is even done away from the temple and the temple grounds. Again, underscoring the illegitimacy of her claim. So throughout that whole period, up through Athaliah, the temple had been neglected. And when uh, uh, Joash, who's a young boy, when he becomes king, he undertakes renovation of the temple and by extension, a recovery, a restoration of the worship of the God of Israel, the God of David. But he's a young boy, and essentially Jehoiada the priest is his father figure and his mentor. And so Jehoiada makes a covenant with God on behalf of the kingship and on behalf of the people of Judah. And it's in carrying out that covenant that, that Jehoiada influences Joash, who's a boy, but he's the king to begin to undertake this renovation of the temple. And as part of this covenant uh, commitment, the, the people of Judah respond by destroying the temple that had been erected to Baal, tearing down its altars, all of its images, and even killing the ministering priest that Athaliah uh, had, had in place. 
So his faithful actions then reflected the leadership and guidance of the priest Jehoiada, who was like a father to him and his mentor. He was the one that cared for him when he was hidden away. And when Jehoiada died, Joash, which is not uncommon, was left without any mentor. He was left somewhat rudderless. And he began to now listen to other voices, other people who were counseling him how to uh, administer his reign. And he even came to the point where he determined to execute Jehoiada's son, the man who had been faithful, who had raised him, who had helped him to establish and and recover Yahweh's kingdom back to a state of faithfulness. Um, He now even executes the son of Jehoiada. And the response that God brings to that is that Joash is assassinated by his own servants. That's how God providentially responds to that outrage on the part of Joash. So again, a faithful king, but yet very flawed. And that same inconsistency was then duplicated in his son and his grandson, Amaziah and Uzziah. The Chronicles say that Amaziah did right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. Again, a mixed bag. So I give you the example of God granting him victory over Edom, the descendants of Esau. And what, how does Amaziah respond to that? He brings the Edomite idols back to Jerusalem and makes them his own. So the Lord then responds by inciting him in his pride uh, to start a war with Israel, and that ends the second era of Israelite-Judean alliance. Not only does it end that alliance, but Judah is defeated by Israel. The house of David is defeated by this apostate northern kingdom. And the Israelite king proceeded to tear down part of the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And again, he took the precious articles of the temple and Amaziah's palace back to Samaria. So David's kingdom is plundered, not by the Egyptians this time, but by the apostate Israelite kings in the north. That's how God responded to Amaziah's idolatry. Uzziah is most famous, I think. I mean, certainly this is what I most know him uh, in terms of is his, he followed the pattern of Saul in, in his arrogance. Uzziah was a great king. He was a great military leader. He brought uh, very much the greatness of David's kingdom back militarily, extending its borders, its domination, getting the tribute of the nations in. He was a great military man like David was. But in his hubris, in his greatness, he decided that he could go into the temple and burn incense on the altar, the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies. And the priests who who saw him go in and do that were outraged. They went in and they confronted him. And he, in his anger, uh, you know, lashing out at them, when he reached out his hand to, to lash out at them, God struck him with leprosy. And he was confined to his house for the rest of his life so that his reign was actually administered more by his son. He was in seclusion for the rest of his life. So Uzziah repeated that sin of Saul of thinking that he could function as a priest. We saw that David was the only king of Israel who could function in any sense as a priest, and that's because of his unique role. So Uzziah is is, is an, another second king who God punishes for usurping the priesthood. 
his son, Jotham, who was administering his reign while he was uh, locked away in his uh, leprous condition, Jotham did rule as a faithful son of David, but he couldn't reverse that apostasy. That trend was already strongly in place. And Jotham's son, Ahaz, we know something about Ahaz already. We've considered him before. But Ahaz is the one who... He sits on the throne of David, remember, and you have Pekah in the north forming an alliance with the Arameans to try to depose him from the throne of David, to put their own king uh, on the throne of David in order to bolster their alliance to resist the Assyrians who are moving uh, from Mesopotamia, from the Euphrates down south and west into Judea. And Ahaz decides that what he's going to do is to form an alliance with the king of Assyria to protect him from this alliance in the north between the king in Israel and the king in in, uh, Aramea or Syria. And Isaiah confronts him with that. And he goes to him and he says, the Lord says to you, ask the Lord for a sign. And he says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. So he feigns this kind of loyalty, but he's already working this angle of getting the king of Assyria to become his ally. The Assyrians are the main players in in the Middle East at that point in time. And so he bribes that king with treasures from his own house and treasures from the temple to essentially be his sword against Israel and against the Arameans in the north. And the the Assyrian king does, in fact, destroy the, the northern kingdom, as we know, of Israel and also destroy the Syrians as well. But then he makes his way on into Judah. But as part of this bribing of the Assyrians, uh, Ahaz goes to meet him up at Damascus where he has one of his palaces and, and what do you want to say, a second capital, if you will, of his kingdom. And he sees this great Assyrian altar and he sends instructions to his priest back in Jerusalem to replicate that altar in Jerusalem, this Assyrian altar. This is what Ahaz does as part of showing his solidarity with the Assyrians. So they build this Assyrian altar and set it right in front of the temple and move the altar of uh, a burnt offering off to the side. And he says, this is now where we're going to offer our, our offerings. And if we inquire of the Lord, we'll go over here. But this is where we're going to be our main point of interface now. He sets that right in front of the temple. That's his affront. Well, that was uh, Ahaz thought that the Assyrians were going to deliver him. Well, they end up actually coming in, in two assaults against Jerusalem. And the second time uh, when, they're, when they're actually marching on Jerusalem is when God uh, fulfills his word through. And Ahaz is actually gone. Ahaz lives to see the northern kingdom fall you know, to the Assyrians, but then his son Hezekiah is the one who's on the throne when that Assyrian assault on Jerusalem takes place. And that's when God fulfills his word that he will save the house of David. He will save the throne of David. And the text records that he sent out his angel and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. So that happens during the reign of Hezekiah. But you see in Hezekiah's own life, again, this inconsistency. For the most part, Hezekiah is a faithful king. And he you know, calls in Isaiah and he pleads with Isaiah, go before the Lord on our behalf you know, to, to deliver us from the king of Assyria, from their assault. And God does that. 
But you see also in terms of Hezekiah himself as the king on the throne of Judah, as the son of David on the throne, you see in Hezekiah's own life, he, he contracts a fatal disease and he pleads with the Lord to heal him. And God says, I'm going to give you 15 years of additional life. I'm going to heal you and I'm going to give you 15 additional years. And what Hezekiah does when he is recovered is he again becomes, you know, kind of full of himself and confident in who he is. And at this time, the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going back and forth. They're, they're, they're battling each other for primacy in, the, in that Mesopotamian region. And the king of Babylon comes and visits him. And again, the throne of David, Hezekiah as well, uh, they're, they're very much enemies of Assyria, and so they tend to want to be aligning themselves with the Babylonians. And Hezekiah welcomes this Babylonian king, and as part of, of showing uh, the grandeur of his kingdom and soliciting this, this kind of alliance with him, it, the text says he opened up all the treasures of his kingdom to the king of Babylon to see. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him and he says, what have you done? You know, well, I just showed the king of Babylon all the treasures of my kingdom. And he says, well, I'm telling you, the day's going to come when the king of Babylon's going to come and see all those treasures and he's going to take them. Now, this doesn't happen in Hezekiah's time. God gives him a lease on life, but that lease on life is an, he uses that to, in a sense, open up the wealth of God's kingdom to the Babylonians. And it becomes a foretaste, a kind of prototyping uh, or a prefiguration of what's going to happen to the kingdom of David that God has given a lease on life. God delivered David's throne from the Assyrians. He gave it a lease on life. What's going to come from that lease on life? A good outcome? No, a bad outcome. The Babylonians are going to seize the wealth of the kingdom. And you see that in a microcosmic way in Hezekiah's own experience. So his experience becomes a picture of what's coming to the kingdom. So once you get beyond Hezekiah, then things move fairly quickly. He has a son, Manasseh, who is a horrible king. Another son, Ammon, after that, who a grandson, Ammon, who is both of those guys are horrible kings. You see them reviving even the, you know, the, the worship of Moloch, the burning of their sons in the fire, the things that, that kind of become the epitomizing thing that God condemns uh, Judah for, that they would actually take their children and sacrifice them in the fire to Moloch. So Josiah is the last of the faithful kings, and he, he is very zealous. He's the one, remember, that it was prophesied uh, to the altar that Jeroboam had built up in Bethel, that a king to come, Josiah, will burn the bones of the priests on this altar. Josiah is the one who carries that out. So he does everything he can to eradicate all of this idolatry and corruption and spiritual pollution from David's kingdom, but he's, un, he's unable to do that. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who is now the king of Babylon, initiates Judah's destruction. And what's happened is that you're getting down to the climactic battles between Assyria and Babylon. 
And the Babylonians have already conquered Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, and pushed the Babylonians out. So the king is retreated, and they end up forming a, a kind of refuge, an Assyrian refuge at Carchemish. And the Babylonians are moving towards Carchemish to finally devastate the, the Assyrians once and for all. And, and the pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, is coming up out of Egypt up along the coastline to, as an ally to assist the Assyrians against the Babylonians. And Josiah goes out to battle with Pharaoh Necho when he's crossing through the land of Israel. And there's debate as to why he would do that. The Pharaoh says, why are you coming out, Josiah? This has nothing to do with you. This is between me and, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Why are you getting involved in this? But Josiah insists on fighting the Egyptians, and he ends up being killed in that battle. That's how Josiah dies. And I think probably, again, they viewed the Babylonians at that time as not allies, but as you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Assyrians were for so long s such an abhorrent threat and to, the, to the Israelites and even to David's kingdom that the Egyptians being allied with the Assyrians, it's like I'm not going to allow the Egyptians to bolster the Assyrian forces. I want to see them crushed. I want to see Babylon prevail. Well, Babylon did, did end up prevailing. But when, when the Egyptian pharaoh kills Josiah, then what he does, Josiah's son Jehoahaz takes the throne and the pharaoh deposes him. He's conquered, in a sense, David's house. He deposes Jeho uh, Jehoahaz and he takes his brother Eliakim and he puts him on the throne. He names him Jehoiakim. So now Egypt has a vassal king on David's throne. You think you're going to come out and conquer me? Okay, well, I just beat you. I killed you. No, I'm going to put my own descendant of yours on the throne. So Jehoiakim is an ally of Egypt. He is a vassal to Egypt. Well, in the meantime, through this process, e Egypt and Assyria are destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Babylonian king allows Jehoiakim to stay on the throne until he dies and then when he dies, his son Jehoiakim takes the throne. But the uh, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar immediately goes and, and, and takes him and hauls him in chains back to Babylon. And he takes not Jehoiakim's son, but Jehoiakim's uncle, Mataniah, who is named Zedekiah. He names him Zedekiah. So now you have a Babylonian vassal on the throne of Judah. And Zedekiah is the last king in Judah. And one of the reasons why that's important is that if you read in Jeremiah 22, and we won't go and read this for the sake of time, but I give you the citation here in 22:24. And remember, Jeremiah was a prophet right at the time all this was happening. And God said to Jeremiah, Say concerning Jehoiakim, Koniah was another variant of his name. Say concerning him, write this man down childless. Even if he were, even if Koniah were a signet ring on my hand, I would tear him off. 
And as I say, Jehoiakim was allowed on the throne only for three months. Then he was hauled away to Babylon. And that was to fulfill God's word. But God says, write this man down childless. No descendant of his will ever sit on the throne or rule again over the house of David. So this is where God severs the royal line of David. Jehoiakim is the last king in that royal line. You say, well, what about Zedekiah? Zedekiah was his uncle. In terms of line of descent, Jehoiakim was the last in David's line to sit on that throne. Zedekiah was above him. Do you see what I'm saying? Zedekiah was his uncle. He wasn't a descendant of Jehoiakim. There was no descendant from Jehoiakim on the throne of David. And God cut off that line. He cursed that line. So Zedekiah is a vassal of Babylon. He remains faithful for nine years. And even though Jeremiah has gone to him and said, this is God's doing, serve the king of Babylon and it will go well for you. You'll be allowed to remain in the land. Resist him and I'm going to desolate the whole thing and you're going to be hauled away out of here. Well, Zedekiah thought he could resist the Babylonians and after nine years of paying tribute, he leads a rebellion. You know, he revolts against a Babylonian authority. Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army, lays siege to Jerusalem, basically surrounds the city, cuts it off, and then just waits. And if you read in Jeremiah, it's, the language is so graphic and so, des, uh, so almost hard to read of what's coming. Because you cut off a city like that, and there's no food, there's no water, starvation comes. And disease starts coming. And the prophet Jeremiah said, this is going to be so bad. The woman who is too dainty to let her, the sole of her foot touch the ground, they're going to be fighting over whose child are they going to eat. They're going to be fighting for the afterbirth that issues from between their legs. This is how bad it's going to be. So for two years, the Babylonians just wait. And when the city is just filled with disease and weakness and sickness... Then they just put up their siege ramps and they just go into the city and they destroy it. They burn it to the ground. They tear the temple down. They burn the whole thing to the ground. Zedekiah flees. They find him. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has him. The last thing he sees is the Babylonians killing, slaying his sons with the sword. And as, as soon as he sees his sons butchered, then his eyes are blinded. So that's the last thing that he sees. This was the fate that came to David's house because of its unfaithfulness. So the Lord had kept his word to David regarding his sword. It had finally done its complete work against his house, but he would also keep his oath regarding the perpetuity of David's house and kingdom. Remember again, it's not just that how can a dispersed people scattered to the nations under Gentile domination with no power, no army, no, no kingdom, how can they possibly bring this thing back together? But more than that, how can there ever be a son of David on the throne? God has cursed that line. How can you have a son of David when God has said there will be no son of David in that line on the throne? How can the impossible happen? How can, uh, again, getting back to the Abraham thing, how can Isaac be the son through whom Abraham will become a great nation when he's to be killed as an adolescent before he has any children. How can that happen? 
how can David's throne be restored in a son to come from his royal line when God has severed that line? Well, for the next, this is 586 that, that the city falls. And up until all the way to the time of the birth of Jesus, Israel is having to think, how can God be faithful? How can he do what he said he's going to do? How can there be a son of David? And they're, you know, they had to think about how can this possibly happen? How can God pull this back together? And that's why I say here, circumstances seem to absolutely preclude that ever happening. But believing that their God was true and he would be true to his word, that was Israel's enduring obligation of faith across all of those centuries. Yes, a remnant came back to Jerusalem. Yes, they built the temple, but Yahweh didn't return to it. Yes, they rebuilt the city and the walls. But under Gentile domination and under oppression, and it went from the Babylonians to the Medes and the Persians to the Greeks to the Ptolemies to the Romans. And the Romans were in control of that area at the time that Jesus was born. Gentile domination. Yahweh has not returned to Jerusalem. He has not returned to his temple. And there is no son of David on the throne. The Herods were the kings, and they were Edomites. The Jews didn't accept them as kings, rightful kings. They weren't of the sons of David. They were Edomites. They hated the Herods. The Jews hated them, right? This is the historical backdrop into which Jesus is born. How can God possibly do what he says he's going to do? They had to believe him until at last their faith was vindicated when the word became flesh. And it's interesting, if you look at, at the Israelite scriptures, and with this I'm done, our Bibles, not entirely, but our Bibles tend to be arranged more chronologically, our Old Testaments. In the Tanakh, in the Jewish version, in their Bible, the last book is Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. It's not the last historically, it's the last in their text. And I want us to look at that because the reason, there's a reason that's important. The Jews have arranged their text, and it's the same content, but arranged differently, their Old Testament. Um, it reflects thematic organization more than chronology. It's, it's organized around themes. The big categories being law, prophets, and writings. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, that's where Tanakh comes from. But if you look at the end of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles tells the, this desolating of the kingdom that I just went through very briefly. This is 35 and 36. It tells this story of the end of, of David's house and kingdom. But I just want you to look at the last part of this. We'll pick this up at verse 17 of chapter 36. And you'll, you'll get a sense of why they make this the very last exclamation point in their Bible, why the Jewish people have done it this way. It says in verse 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this means the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. 
Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And the 70, I think, is actually reckoned most closely to the destruction of the temple, the completion of the new temple, 586 to 516. That's the actual 70 years. But you do have exiles beginning to come back around 535, 536. This is 586 B.C. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Persians were the ones who conquered the Babylonians. And basically, when they conquered the Babylonians, the Babylonian empire became their empire. So now um, the, the Persians under Cyrus are the ones who have authority over the land of Judea over the whole of what we would call Palestine and the Israelite people, most of whom are all scattered throughout the Mesopotamia and the Diaspora and the Middle East. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. The Jewish Bible ends on the note of promise and hope. The rebuilding of Yahweh's house, the rebuilding of the city. And you read about this in Isaiah 44 and 45. Cyrus is called Yahweh's Mashiach. He is my anointed, Mashiach, Messiah. Now, he's not the Messiah, but Cyrus, this great king, is the anointed one of the Lord who God sets apart and empowers to see to it that his house and his city are rebuilt. So Cyrus becomes the great prototype of the Messiah who comes, who will rebuild Yahweh's house and Yahweh's dwelling place the city of the great God to which all the nations come. So the Jewish Bible ends on this hope. Cyrus does this, and yet when the city's rebuilt, when the temple's rebuilt, like I said, Yahweh doesn't return. They're waiting for that to happen. It's an empty temple. And yes, the city's rebuilt, but under Gentile domination. When will the son of David arise? When will he come? When will he take the throne? When will Yahweh again return to dwell among his people? Well, he will do that when he has forgiven them. He will do that when he renews the covenant. All of these things were Israel's expectation and hope, the things that they were looking for and that they were measuring any person against who would claim to be the Messiah. And this is what Jesus is saying when he comes into the world. I am that one and I am here to do all of those things, but not in the way you think. I will do all of what God has promised. All the promises of God, as Paul says, are yes in him. I will do everything that you're expecting. I will liberate you. I will set the exiles free. I will regather the prisoners. I'll bring them out. 
I will see to it that Yahweh is again indwelling his temple. I will reestablish the throne of David. And I will gather in God's people from all the nations. And we will form a new house of David, a new Israel in, in me. That's what Jesus' message was all about. So the end of the southern kingdom then becomes again this great crisis in Israel's life. And for many, many centuries, they had to somehow believe that God would prove true. And just again, as a punctuation mark on this, when we look at our own lives and seemingly impossible circumstances, and we say, how can God deal with this? Or what is this? How does this make sense? What's this all about? When we look at the way in which he dealt with uh, the nation of Israel and Judah throughout all of those centuries, it should give us a sense that he is more than able to deal with the impossibilities. doesn't mean he's the servant of our agenda, but we can never say that our circumstances, however strange or unwieldy or seemingly impossible they are, are outside of God's working and his power. But we never want to presume how he's working or what he's doing, just as Jesus came and, and is the fulfiller of all these things, but not at all in the way they expected. And yet God was true. God was faithful, and he remains faithful to this day. Well, let me close in prayer then, and then we'll have a few minutes of meditation, a couple minutes while this song plays. And I want you to think about the lyrics of this song. I gave you um, the lyrics to it. The king of love my shepherd is. And so you can kind of look at the lyrics while you're listening to it. It's actually drawn from Psalm 23, but it very much speaks to what we've been talking about today. Uh, so let me close us in prayer then, and we'll go to that time. Father, I know lots of names, lots of circumstances, lots of uh, things going on in history that can perhaps seem confusing to us. But again, I, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand the importance of at least having a basic schematic of Israel's history because this is the the subject of the Old Testament scriptures that have found all of the things that they were concerned with to have their yes and amen in Jesus. He himself said that all of the scriptures testify of him and that if his generation would have known the scriptures, they would have known him. And so it is important that we know the Israelite history not to become historians, but to know our God and to see the faithfulness of your hand throughout all of those centuries. A God who continues to keep covenant, a God who will not forget, a God who will not grow weary, a God who will not change his mind. And in all of that faithfulness, it, the word of the Lord, uh, the word that is true became embodied incarnate in Christ himself. It's at the very center of what John meant when he said the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is your yes and amen. Jesus is your truth. He is the one in whom all that you have said and purposed and worked out uh, has come to its ultimate realization. And if we would be his people, we must know this God who has been faithful through all of those centuries in all of those ways. So help us in that. Lord, cause us to continue to grow, to continue to become all the more enthused and, and just enamored with who you are and, and what you have done. 
I pray that we would never get over this good gospel, this good news that defines us, that drives us, that is uh, the, the very mission that you've entrusted to us. May we truly be a gospel people, and that means to be a Christ-centered people. <clears throat> so bless us as we continue our worship, Father, and even as we come and, and take the table together, commemorating and remembering this Christ who has given all for us, and in the giving of himself, we see the giving of the Father out of love for his creation. So may we even be blessed and encouraged through that uh, ordinance as well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.